Welcome everyone once again to the very last and final session of the 37th Kentucky State Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know about you, but I've had a wonderful time. I would like to say this, I've had an awful lot of people come up and um, thank the host committee. Uh, we found various of us um, in the hallways and whatnot, just wanted to stop and to thank us for the convention that has been put on here. Uh, they said that we've they've been made to feel welcome and um, that they've gotten out into the city of Owensboro and they found the people here very friendly. We were hoping that it would be that way for you. I want to say this about you. I want to thank you. I have found each and every one of you who come here today to uh, to enjoy this conference this weekend uh, to have brought your own uh, brand of hospitality with you from wherever you came. And we of the host committee wish to thank you for making this a successful convention. We could have lined up uh, the best speakers in the world to have come here and talked, and were it not for the people who came to listen to them, we wouldn't have had a convention. So we thank you. I'm going to ask someone from the host committee to go next door and see why we're having to compete with that noise over there. Well, we'd, uh, it's a lot more, what's going on in, in here is a lot more important than an antique show. <laughs> I have just a couple of announcements before I turn this over to the chair. A lady by the name of Lou from Owensboro, who was working on the uh, literature desk out there yesterday, asked me to make this announcement. She uh, said in her own alcoholic way she did not acquire enough information from these people in order to pass along certain things that they were due. She says she has a six-year medallion for Sylvia. So, Lou, if you're here, I'm going to ask you to be at the back door after the meeting, and maybe you can meet Sylvia back there. And also, there was another young lady uh, who ordered or purchased an acceptance pamphlet, and I think Lou has found that for you. Lou does not even have your name. So, if you, uh, whoever you were that ordered that acceptance pamphlet uh, towards the back of the room after the meeting is over, well, I think Lou will turn it over to you. The, uh, there's, there's one piece of information that, that I've had more requests for than, than anything else, and, and I, I'm curious about the, uh, the desire for this information. And I, I think the desire for it is uh, based on the fact that um, we alcoholics, um, I think, were beat down for so long, and we experienced such long periods where there was no success in our lives, that when we ultimately begin to experience success, we like it for ourselves and we like it for those around us. And I think that's what this figure represents to each and every one of us here, success. There are 1,594 people registered here this weekend. I think whoever canna does, your canner's broke. Just like Mary T. said her picker was broke, your canner was broke. We've had more people here than that, I believe, this weekend. 
I think we've had upwards of 2,000 in these chairs out here to listen. I'm going to turn the matter over this morning to this morning's chairman, Jim W. Good morning. My name is Jim Wood. I'm an alcoholic. Before we start, I'd like to point out one thing that I believe makes this conference or any AA conference a little bit different from any convention or conference you've ever been to before. If you look around, you'll notice it's Sunday morning and everyone's here. With that out of the way, I'd like to start with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. I've asked Richard N. to read the steps. My name is Richard Norris and I'm an alcoholic. Twelve Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's now my distinct privilege and pleasure to introduce the speaker, Bob O. from Littleton, Colorado. About a week ago, I was able to get my hands on one of Bob's tapes and was indeed impressed. The last day and a half, I've had occasion to spend some time with him, and I'm still impressed. So with that, I'll turn you over to our speaker, Bob O. God knows why. My name is Bob Olson, I'm an alcoholic. It's by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have not found a need or an excuse to take a drink today. Nor have I found a need or an excuse to take a drink since May 28th of 1973, and I'm really grateful for that. About three weeks ago, Jack J. called me um, at home and asked me if I, was, if I would come to Owensboro, Kentucky to speak. Um, my first thought was they sure put these things together on short notice. Uh, and then he said, well, I don't intend to hurt your feelings, but you're second choice. I don't know how you respond to that. What do you say? Thank you, but not quite so much? Yeah. 
I'm delighted to be here. I really am. I need to be here. And I've had a great time. I got I was fortunate enough to get here on Friday afternoon, so I've enjoyed the whole conference and all the speakers, and I've really had a great time. It's been quite an adventure getting here. Uh, when I got to the airport in St. Louis, um, they said that Flight 7360 was leaving from Gate 63A. And I walked out the door expecting to get on a plane and got on a bus. Um, they drove us out to this little tiny airplane that they said was going to Evansville. Uh, and then it was too late to back out. It's really been a lot of fun since I've been here. I've gotten a lot of rest, and it's, it's been a relaxing time, but still an adventure. Jim took me out uh, yesterday on a tour of uh, Owensboro, and I saw all the beautiful houses over on the uh, Azalea Trail, and then he said he wanted me to try some of the local food, and took me to a restaurant, and I said, great, what are we going to eat? And he said, we're going to start with burgoo, um, and then we're going to have a sliced mutton plate. Now, that may be really good news to you. <laughs> but when he told me that, I thought it was some sort of initiation procedure you put your convention speakers through. It really was very good. The only other really notable part of the adventure was this is probably the first time in year I've taken two consecutive cold showers. <laughs> I don't mind that. Um, the worst part about that is when the water just stops completely when you're all lathered up. I really shouldn't make jokes about this. I've had a great time since I've been here, and I've enjoyed your hospitality. Um, I've just enjoyed being here. I'm a member of the Alcoholic Olsons from Madison, Wisconsin. We've been putting people in insane asylums and early graves uh, since we got here from Norway. The last one was my dad. His name is Bob Olson, too. He lives in a place in King, Wisconsin that's an army home. Um, he's paralyzed, he can't speak, and it's a direct result of his alcoholism. Um, when I was a kid, they, they always compared me to him. The way they compared me to him is you're going to be a bum just like your old man. Um, I learned about the insanity of alcohol pretty early. My dad was married nine times. Um, you know, women were just crazy about him. Until uh, they got him home.
And they couldn't get rid of him fast enough. Uh, I hated him. He was, I came from a pretty typical kind of family um, up there, not in Wisconsin, but in, the, but in our lineage anyway. Um, my dad was physically abusive, alcoholic. My mother was neurotic and suicidal. Um, I didn't find out until a few years ago that wasn't normal. Um, that's the way you grow up. If you grow up in that kind of atmosphere, you just figure that's the way it is. That's not true. Um, I lived with four or five families by the time I was 12. I, my mother had a habit of abandoning, abandoning me periodically. And the only reason why I tell you that is just to tell you that by the time I was 12 years old, I was pretty well shut off emotionally. I made some decisions back then that I'd never let anybody close to me because they all seemed to leave anyway. Um, so when they told me I got to go live with a different family, I'd just go live with them and they'd say, how do you feel about that? And I'd just go, well, what the hell? Uh, when I was about 16, I, my mother had married another alcoholic and, and uh, I was living in a little town in Wisconsin. I'd, I'd become, become kind of an overachiever. I'd, you know, I'd been compared to my dad for so long that, that I really wanted to be good. I'd, I'd, I wanted to do everything right. I wanted to do everything well. I did something well. I can't remember what it was. I think it was something about football, and uh, and I ran home to uh, to tell my mother. And when I ran, well, I got home and I couldn't find her. I I looking around for. I figured she was probably up in her bedroom. And I walked up in her bedroom. She had a nine millimeter pistol stuck in her ear, and I was watching her pulling the trigger. Um, she saw me come through the door, and 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 the gun came down, and she just brought the gun back up and tried to pull the trigger again. And I was absolutely certain I was going to watch her die. You know, but that gun has a double safety system on it, and she couldn't figure out how to run it. And uh, and she was about the only connection I had with reality at all. And after that, and I don't know whether that's what it was or whatever the hell it was, but but after that, my life really became a paradox. They couldn't figure out whether I was trying to be Captain Marvel or John Dillinger. When I was 17, I was uh, vice president of the student body. I was head of the citizenship club. I was president of the Luther League. I started junior achievement in my hometown. I ran a gambling operation at a racetrack. <laughs> and I was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon and sentenced to two years in the Green Bay State Reformatory, which I didn't have to serve. I uh, went off and thought I could straighten out my life by joining the Navy. Um, the law also thought I could straighten out my life by joining the Navy. 
uh, and I spent four years there um, without anything real serious happening. Got out, went to the University of Wisconsin. I was in the top three percent at the University of Wisconsin scholastically. And every time I'd get so wound up emotionally that I'd have to, I'd go there and say, "Just I'm going to leave." And they were trying to get me to go to medical school, and I, w I was absolutely convinced I was crazy. And I didn't know what the solution was. But the the funny thing, you know, I don't know whether I don't know what happens when you become an alcoholic either. But I know that I had something simmering in me. And when I poured alcohol in me, it lit the fuse. And I got crazier than hell, and nobody wanted to be around me. You know, when they used to describe my dad, they said, and I never knew him that way because I was too young, and he, he split when, when I was less than a year old. And the only time I ever saw him, he'd just come around and beat the hell out of me and leave again. And... Uh, but I met some people that knew him when he was younger. And they said, you know, your dad was one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet until he drank. And I have the same problem. When I put alcohol in my system, I become mean and abusive and nasty. And I do that to all the people that are closest to me. I have a radical personality change when I drink, and I've always had it. Uh, when I got out of the Navy, I went to school for a while and, and uh, finally had to leave there because I couldn't stand it. You know, I'd get in a class and I'd get so full of anxiety that when they called roll, when they got around to the O's, um, I was so damn scared I couldn't even raise my hand. Uh, some girl came up to me and asked me about having lunch or something like that. I would, I would get so nervous I'd almost faint. Um... I was scared half to death. And so I left there and I thought I'd get a job that, uh, that could straighten out some of the kinks in my personality, so I got a job as a bill collector. Um, when I started as a bill collector, I weighed 175 pounds. And I had decided that the proper way to do that was to be a diplomat. Um, I, I would go out and explain very carefully to people in northern Wisconsin or the, even the north side of Chicago uh, why they ought to pay their bills. And they thought that was funnier than hell. <laughs> so I went up to 240 pounds and started telling them. <laughs> And every day, you know that's a real kind of nerve-wracking job. Uh, you go out and you get in front of people and they get mad at you and they're swinging at you and pointing guns at you and threatening you with all sorts of stuff. And after a while, you, you get so wired, wired so tight that you're kind of afraid to go home at night because you're going to start shouting at your wife. And So I'd stop at the bar and I'd have a couple of shots and a couple of beers before I went home. And you know my insanity doesn't leave me when I sober up. You know, I'd go get about half, half smashed and I'd stay that way until I went to sleep at night. And then I'd get up in the next morning and I'd be paranoid, just crazy. 
And the problem with that is if you're a 240-pound bill collector and you're crazy, is that you can get in trouble with the law, but I'll tell you, you don't have any problem collecting money. I finally got to the point where I used to kick people's doors in, <laughs> go in their house and slam them up against the wall and explain to them why they ought to pay me. <laughs> now, contrary to the consumer protection laws, that's a very efficient way to collect money. Um, I came to the notice of a group of people in Chicago um, who do that kind of stuff for a living. And a friend of mine, my best friend in high school, uh, came to ask me if I would be willing to go to work at this racetrack. It was a syndicate run racetrack in Chicago. He had become very successful, too. He was a pimp in Chicago. <laughs> and he asked me if I, would, uh, if I would come down there and go to work for a racetrack. And I said, well, I don't know anything about running a racetrack. And he said, that's all right. They just want you to walk around with the guy that runs the racetrack. <laughs> And I said, why would they want me to do that? And he said, because you're crazy, Bob. <laughs> you walk around there with a gun in your hand, and they point and tell you to point at somebody and shoot, and you'd probably do it. <laughs> you know, that's kind of funny, but that's not very funny. You know, because it just verifies the fact that I not only thought I was crazy, but everybody else did, too. At the same time, I was president of the JCs. <laughs> I was president of the Optimist Club. <laughs> I was voted one of the outstanding young men in the community. And I was on the governor's committee for mental health. Got so bad I had to leave that job. It, um, you know, you do that about five years and your guts just don't ever come back together. And uh, I went off and joined a paper company. They really liked me because I was active in the community. And, uh, and I became a salesman and I went right up the corporate ladder. I was extremely successful. Um, uh, they had a, a reception for my wife and I uh, in that community, and I met a lot of interesting people. Some of them were doctors. They noticed I was a little nervous, and they had this innocuous little substance that they thought had no effect on you at all and, and told me that they thought I ought to try some. And, uh, it's called Librium. <laughs> 
and for the next seven years I took 30 to 50 milligrams of Librium every morning because I didn't have to go in DTs. Um, that was pretty neat, you know, you get up in the morning, you swallow a bunch of this junk, and you don't go in DTs until about 3 o'clock. <laughs> and then you can start drinking. Um, I went right up the ladder. I went uh, uh, from a salesman to uh, a, a plant manager of a paper converting plant in Minneapolis by the time I was about 33 years old. Um, I was up in Minneapolis and a friend of mine who was the, who was the vice president of uh, marketing for the corporation that owned this this converting plant came up his name was Dick and he he came into my office and he said hi I'm Dick I'm the I'm the uh, vice president of marketing for consolidated and uh, I wanted to meet you you're doing a good job up here at this plant I also want to tell you some stuff about me number one is I'm an alcoholic and I said well good <laughs> Um, and we got to know each other pretty well and he, say, he said to me one day he said you do drink a lot don't you and I said yeah and he said well thank God you don't take pills <laughs> right and I said like these <laughs> and he said that's, that stuff will wipe you out that stuff will kill you and uh, he kind of scared me. Actually, Dick had a slip not too long after that, and I went over to see him at St. Mary's Hospital there. And he had the director of the alcoholism unit talk to me, and, the, and he scared the hell out of me, so I quit taking pills for a while. One morning, it was, it was on a Saturday morning, I got up and I... I was going to go out and get the paper or something, I don't know, and I, I got to the door and, and it, reached like, it felt like somebody reached inside of my chest and just started twisting everything and, and my knees got weak and I started breaking into a sweat and I was absolutely certain I was having a heart attack. And I went over and I sat down and promptly forgot it. <laughs> got up and went out to look at something else the same thing happened again uh, I have to tell you in fairness that we sort of wear out our wives and I went to my wife and I said I think I'm having a heart attack will you drive me to the hospital and she said no So I called the uh, local police and said, this is Bob Olson. They said, we know. <laughs> Will you drive me to the hospital? No. So I drove myself to the hospital. I got over there and went into the, went into the emergency room, and I was just sort of standing there waiting for someone to make a fuss. And, uh, Finally, someone came up and said, what's the problem? And I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they said, well, come on over here. And they made me put on this little gown and laid me down on this sort of gurney. And I laid there about 20 minutes, and nobody came. So I got up, and I went looking for somebody. 
and I found this guy that was walking around with a stethoscope and I said are you a doctor and he said yes and I said well I think I'm having a heart attack and he said are you sure and I said well I don't know uh, I could be having a heart attack or I could be having a nervous breakdown or I could be suffering from alcohol withdrawal and he said well if, uh, if you're suffering from a nervous breakdown or alcohol withdrawal we're going to have to put you in the psychiatric ward and I said well then I'm having a heart attack <laughs> So he said, well, uh, who's your doctor? And I said, so-and-so. He called him up, and he came back, and he had a bottle of 200 Libriums, and he said, take five instead of three. And away I went. You know, the only reason why I'm telling you all this stuff is just so you and I both know I'm an alcoholic. Because <laughs> I didn't come here to tell you drunk stories. I came here to talk about recovery, and that's all I really have to share with you. In May of 1973, I would, had moved back to Wisconsin. Uh, I, had, I had tried going to AA. In fact, I had tried going to AA since 1968. Um, it's my experience that if you're high on drugs or high on alcohol, that AA doesn't work for you. I don't care if you're so screwed up you can't stop sweating and you got to sit on your hands and you can't say anything intelligible. Uh, AA will work for you if you get that crap out of your system. Uh, but I never did that. I always went to AA meetings about half whacked and most of the time drunk. And I'd go in there and people would stroke me and tell me I was going to be all right and keep coming back and things like that don't work for me. I don't think I'm an odd breed of cat either. You know, I see people coming into AA and, and they feel so bad and they're turned so inward and they're just sort of huddled there waiting for somebody to stroke them and I think it's a mistake to stroke them most of the time because they won't hear you. You know, sometimes I think you got to go up and shout in their ear. Sometimes you got to say something real crude, like, why don't you pull your head out of your ass? <laughs> you can tell I'm the spiritual speaker. I tried to go to A, it didn't work for me. I didn't work for me because I didn't let it. Um, I had gone to the point that there was this old Irishman there at this meeting in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and he said, you need a sponsor, and I'll be your sponsor until you find somebody you like. And I said, great. And he'd take me out on 12-step calls with him. I managed to stay sober two or three days at a time during that period. And uh, he did everything he could do for me, and I just did... You know, one day I sat down, I got myself a fifth of gin and a little vermouth, and I thought I'd be real uppity and have a martini, and I had a couple of them and called them, 
And I said, Leo, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I think it was a mistake, but, but I appreciate all your help. And I just wanted to call you and tell you that. And his only comment to me was, I think we'll see you again. <laughs> Sometime on May 28th or 73 or before that, he, because I don't remember. I get a kick out of these people that say, if you haven't, if you can't remember your last drunk, you haven't had it. Bullshit. <laughs> How am I going to remember it? I was in a three-day blackout. Sometime around there, I drank so much. You know, I drank so much and I took so many pills and I don't know what the hell happened, but I was on the floor of an empty house and my wife had gone. Um, and I was alone and I knew I was gonna die. And I hit the bottom and I didn't know where to go. Uh, I've always known there's a solution in AA. You know, we're intuitive people even when we drink. God speaks to us through our intuition, through intuitive thought. I knew this solution was here with you, but I just didn't know how to get here. And I don't remember calling anybody. All I remember was they showed up. I also remember that Leo had picked up another guy that was new, and he brought him out to 12-step me. And this guy came in there and he's going, oh my God, oh my God, is he going to die? What's he going to do? Is he going to go into DTs and convulsions? What's going on here? And he's running around like this and there. They were pumping me full of orange juice and honey. My God, why do you do that? <laughs> and they, they took me over to this uh, priest. I was running a halfway house. And they sat me down in front of this guy and he asked me a couple of questions. He said, are you through? And I said, yeah, if there's any way to do this, I'm through. And he said, uh, are you an alcoholic? Yeah, I am. Well, you want to do something about it. Yeah. What are you willing to do? Anything if I can live. Anything. Well, are you willing to believe in God? I don't know. The book says in the first step we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Um, there's a couple of tests in there. The first test that you'll see in there about whether you're an alcoholic or not, or whether I'm an alcoholic or not, if when I honestly want to, can I not stop drinking entirely? Okay? You know what that means? It means, uh, have I ever tried to quit and was successful? 
You know, my sponsor asked me that when he 12-stepped me. And he said, he said, have you ever stopped and stayed stopped? And I went, well, hell no. And he said, well, then you already passed. <laughs> but there's another part. And that is, once you start drinking, do you have little control over the amount you take? He said, either one of those is good enough. And I said, well, like how? And he said, he said, have you ever gone out to have two drinks and had sex? Well, the truth is, no, I've gone out to have two drinks and had 20. Um, if that's going on in your life, the book says you're probably alcoholic. And then it goes in there and starts talking about drinkers. Well, there's a social drinker, so let's test this. Now, you know, I just went through the steps again. In fact, I've got one amend to make. I, I took a fifth step last week. And I have one amend left to make. And I'm going to do that when I get home. Uh, and I have had to reconsider this in the light of different years of sobriety. Well, I'm coming up on 15 years. And what do these steps mean to me today? You know, are they the same? What the heck's that got to do with this? In fact, why am I doing it at all? I mean, I already did it, so I do it ad nauseum. And I do this every year. And what's that got to do with my life today? The book says if I suffer from alcoholism, I suffer from a disease which only a spiritual experience can conquer. And that I got two choices in my life. I can either live a spiritual life or I can die an alcoholic death. And it says these are not easy alternatives to face. <laughs> well, you know to any sane, rational person they're an easy alternative to face. How, did you ever look at that? I mean, when your mind's clear and you go, well, let, let me think about this. <laughs> I want to live a spiritual life, or I want to die in my own vomit in a gutter. Um, so I was looking at it, and I looked at these, I looked at the different forms of drinkers. And it says, well, there's a social drinker, you know, and that's a person that has a couple of drinks and goes home. And I've never been that. And then there is a certain type of hard drinker. And those people, it's interesting, certain types of hard drinkers, they drink a lot of booze. Fifth a day, get in a lot of trouble, get divorced, get fired get sick, get all kinds of stuff, uh, wind up in treatment centers and hospitals. But the differentiation between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic is that at some point an alcoholic loses all control. Well, I have to ask myself, with almost 15 years of sobriety, have I ever drank successfully? Uh -uh. I have never in my memory once I started drinking regularly 
I have never drunk successfully. Just never did. And when I drink, I don't know where I'm going or what's going to happen or who I'm going to hurt or when I'm going to stop. And heavy drinkers don't do that. I am an alcoholic. And left to my own devices, I'll die from it. And I almost did. I'm still an alcoholic. And if I don't take care of my alcoholism, that's what's going to happen to me. You know, recovery in alcoholism is kind of an odd thing. It, it requires continuous work. Alcoholics Anonymous says this. You know, and sometimes I hear people say, well, talk about the spiritual part of the program. The whole program spiritual. This is about getting close to God to recover from alcoholism. And if you think it's something else, they've been lying to you. This is about having God solve our problems. It's an interesting thing. When, I, when, when they started explaining the second step to me, first thing they started talking about was power. You know, that's the first thing. That when, it, when you get in the second step, it says lack of power. That's our dilemma. And how are we supposed to find this power? Well, that's what the book's about, helping us find a power that can change our lives. Before I even started doing this, I should tell you that my sponsor sat down and he said, I want you to read this book word for word, and we're going to start at the forward to the first edition. And I want you to read what it says in italics to show others, other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the purpose of this book. Well, that's kind of strange. Precisely how we recovered? You mean there's a direction in there that is precise that I can follow to recover from alcoholism? Yeah. And my sponsor said, yes, yes, there is, and I can show you precisely how to recover. Does that sound like a real lofty sort of spiritual position to you? It did to me. It's not. That book shows us precisely how to recover. There are no jokes in that book. We got into the second step started talking about power. Lack of power is our dilemma. And since then, I've had a lot of chances to look at what the book says about power. It says lack of power is our dilemma. It says that it, the book's about finding power. And then when you get into the second step and you make your decisions about God, it says we felt a new power flowing in. And then it talks about people with power, peace, and a sense of direction. And then it talks about what the power is, that power which is God. And then it talks about what to do with it. It talks about people laughing at inappropriate places and meetings and having a good time and doing stuff like that. And it says, why shouldn't we? We have recovered, and we've been given the power to help others. I honestly don't believe there's a place in that book anywhere that says I have the power to help myself. Okay. So, so we got in there, and he started. Re we started reading all this stuff about the second step, and he said uh, a couple of things you have to make decisions about here. One of them is, are you even willing to believe? Yeah. My second step experience is this: when I got sober, 
Um, I was sober 90 days. And my sponsor came up to me and he said, why are you sober? And I said, it's because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, bullshit. You've been hanging around here since 1968. And hanging around Alcoholics Anonymous did not solve your problem. What's different? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, are you dieting? And I said, no. Are you exercising? No. Um, are you going to work on a regular basis? No. Well, what's different in your life? Um, I'm doing those funny prayers you asked me to do. You know, I was doing one of the, you know, you hear it around A, pray in the morning to stay sober and thank God at night for keeping you sober. And I said, that's what I'm doing. And he said, you believe that? And I said, no. But I was afraid not to believe it. You know, I didn't know how God listened to me. I, I had no idea. I didn't know whether I ought to be on my knees or I ought to have my hands folded or I ought to speak in archaic English. <laughs> I, d I honestly didn't know how to get to God. I figured maybe there was a trick to that and he wasn't going to listen to you if you didn't do it right. And God listens to me if I even think about it. And he asked me a question that's a pretty brilliant question for a guy with a sixth grade education. He said, would you concede that you're sober today by the grace of a God you don't even believe in? It's true. The other decision to make in the second step comes from a part in the book that says, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God either is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. What's your decision to be? That's what it says. What's my self-imposed crisis? My self-imposed crisis, of course, is my alcoholism, but it's more than that. My crisis is that I can't fix myself. You know, if I could fix myself from this disease, I would have never come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have just stayed at home and fixed it. So, so I can't fix myself. And then I read this thing in the book that says, no human power can relieve my alcoholism. Bad news. If I can't fix me and you can't fix me, who's going to fix me? The next line in the book is, here we were squarely confronted with the issue of faith. You know why? Because if there's no God, there's no way out. Not too long ago, I was going back through the steps, and I looked at it, and I... I was in the second step, and I, you know, my life wasn't going real well. Um, it was like I was running in molasses. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had that experience sober, but you know, my life wouldn't come together. It just didn't flow like it normally does. I was having a lot of trouble, and I was looking in the book for the solution. And I was reading in the second step, and it started talking about people that make heavy going out of life. 
And on the next page, it started talking about people who were having trouble with personal relationships, people uh, that couldn't control their emotional natures, people that were prey to misery and depression, people who were unhappy, who had a sense of uselessness, who didn't seem to have the power to help others. And I'm going, why are they describing me in this book? <laughs> and the next line was that we saw people solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe. And I found out something. You know, there's a description in there. There's these people that make heavy going out of life, and then there's people over here with power, peace, and a sense of direction. And it says that the difference between those two people is the consciousness of the presence of God. How do I do that?